BorderCast podcast is a product of BorderCast.com. We are a dedicated team of meteorologists that provide weather forecasts, discussions, and analysis specific to Boulder County. If you want to receive email notifications for our posts, look for the subscribe button on our homepage. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BoulderCast. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest a topic for future shows, message us at contact at BoulderCast.com. BoulderCast, a Boulder take on weather. Welcome to the BoulderCast podcast. This is Andy. We have Ben as well. Hey, Ben. Hey, Andy. How, how was your week? Well, it was a pretty uh, exciting week. Well, to some degree. I, uh, I'm getting some solar panels installed in my house. Oh, wow. And they started doing that this week. Uh, it's surprising how many people in Colorado want to get solar. The wait time to usually get them is many, many months. Um. But this one, somebody canceled, I guess, and I got moved up. So how long so, did that take to install them? Uh, they can do it in about two or three days from nothing until done. But it takes weeks and months to get all the permits from okay. the city and the state and your utility company. So, yeah, it was a busy week. There was a lot of about six guys running around on the roof. All week, so it's a little bit hard to get work done. Good thing I had noise canceling headphones. <laughs> but how's everything been going on your end? Pretty good. My week uh, hasn't really ended, I guess. Technically, uh, it is Friday that we're recording this, but my Friday is really on Sunday, if that makes any sense. Okay. <laughs> For all of our view listeners, uh, so I, I started my week on Tuesday, and then I actually do a six-day stretch. So mm. it'll be be Sunday. It'll be my last day, and then I'll be off for three days. So okay, um, that'll be a long weekend in the middle of next week. <laughs> yeah, I guess the good part is it'll be during the weekdays. So if I do any outdoor things, it'll be pretty much where a bunch of people would either be working uh, from home or they just mm-hmm. won't be outside as much. So it'll give me. Plenty of time to uh, do some exercise when no one's around. Yeah, that'll be nice. I did see some pictures from one of our uh, subscribers sent some pictures from hiking a 14er a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw those, but uh, they apparently it was, uh, I forget which 14er it was, but it was really crowded on a Wednesday. It looked like Mount Everest. Some of the pictures he's, that he sent along. <laughs> it's just huge trails of people going up uh, the, the 14er. So I don't know. Even in Colorado, you can't avoid on the weekends or weekdays. Sorry. Which uh, 14er was it? Uh, I want to say it was Quandry, but I don't remember fully. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a popular one, I guess. Um, not as popular as. Uh, Beer stop, you know that one's like crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Remember, remember doing beer stop? How worn down the trail was. <laughs> I know. It's like it started out as rocks, and then just from so many people walking on, it got like ground down to sand. <laughs> and it was like no footing on that trail. Yeah, but what was that one we did last summer? But there were sections of that that was kind of like. Yeah, a lot, a lot I knew you were going to bring that one up. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plot of Peak. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. There were some sections where it was just like, well, there's no trail here. It's just a big, big, uh, steep slope of sand. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Luckily, was... though, it was only that one, one, one part where it was relatively steep and you have that zigzag pattern as you went up. Mm-hmm. That was a good trail. That was a good day. <laughs> oh, that was deadly it was like what three or four miles to the top so it was like a lot of elevation gain for not many miles yeah. I forget how many miles but yeah it was something like that eight miles total and three thousand some feet of gain I think I don't know 
I don't remember. That was off of Independence Pass. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> Parking lot. <laughs> but that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it was a pretty good week. I this is the second straight week in a row that I worked entirely outside in my backyard. Oh wow! Like nice. Ten hours a day. <laughs> you know, it doesn't rain here, which we'll talk a little bit more. But it doesn't seem like it's rained in forever, so. It actually works out pretty good for working outside. Don't have to worry about rain or anything. Temperature's pretty much, you know, 60 or so in the morning when I start working, and then it gets close, you know, into the 90s by afternoon. But it's not that bad in the shade. That is one of the nice things about working from home is you can pretty much work anywhere in the house, you know? Yeah. That's for sure. Here's some thunder there. Yep. We got some storms that are... Severe storm warning that just moved through the area. Wow, sounds pretty intense. Oh, yeah. When I used to work from home with my previous job, there was some times when I would uh, go on my patio and just kind of like kind of soak up the sun because like the one section where I would work would be like in my kitchen table. It would never get warm until the end of the day. So I would always like to bask in the snow, in the the sun. Well, that's a good problem to have, being too cold, I guess. <laughs> I hate yeah. being hot. Yeah, that's true. Seems like I have the everything's too hot problem more than anything, especially in the <laughs> summer. Yeah, especially here, yeah. we my, my apartment can get up to 82 by the time it gets into like the evening hours, 7 or 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And usually by that time, I'm like, okay, I, I guess I should turn it on. Turn the air condition on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah my, just... but my coworkers are, um, they're surprised. They ask me, like, what do you set your thermostat to? And I tell them, like, at night I turn it to, like, 78. And they're like, you have it at 78? <laughs> <laughs> Why even turn it on? <laughs> Some of them have it, like, at 72, 74, 76. Wow. <laughs> and... I tell them that I turn it off during the day, and they're like, what? You turn it off? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like that humidity. You really can't turn it off at night. <laughs> can't open the windows too much. Yeah, I keep my thermostat 78, too. That'd <laughs> be a good... Uh, if anyone's listening to this one, you know, feel free to write us, <laughs> write us back and tell us what you set your thermostat to. <laughs> Could get a little poll there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like the seventy-eight for my thermostat only uh, keeps the kitchen at that temperature. The upstairs gets really hot. The basement gets really cold. <laughs> you get a, uh... as you go up in my house. I got four different floors, but every floor gets gets a little bit warmer as you go up. You get a uh, pressure gradient that sets up <laughs> between Probably. the. The temperature gradients are intense enough. <laughs> Could be 20 degrees from the basement to the upstairs. It's crazy. <laughs> but, yeah. In any case, uh, should we get this podcast rolling? Yeah. You want to preview uh, what's going on for this episode? Sure. So we're going to talk a little bit about the weather we've been experiencing yeah, in Boulder and Denver here the last week or so. We'll also talk some about the uptick in tropical activity going on across the Atlantic and Pacific. And anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, we have our speed round, or we've kind of rephrased it as our lightning round. And it's actually going to be talking about lightning for this particular episode. So yeah, go figure. <laughs> we're just going to talk about how it occurs, the types of the lightning, and how we can actually observe it, both from the ground and from space. Okay, sounds like a pretty good episode we got lined up. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, I will start us off with our current weather discussion. So, here we are, we're recording on Friday, July 24th. And just in the last few days, we've really seen the pattern change. Um, You know, we've been talking about the delay in the monsoon for a while now on our 
website. And now we're seeing that the one seems finally starting. So that's good news, right? Yeah, that's good news. If you look at the satellite imagery from that I well, we posted someone posted a little bit on the website earlier, but uh, there's a really nice, clearly defined plume of moisture just coming straight up from Mexico and through Arizona, New Mexico, and into Colorado. And that we had some of that uh, this past Wednesday, but most of it was across the mountains. And finally, today at least, we're getting some of that moisture moving out here into Denver. I think the precipitable water today was about one and a half inches, which is probably nothing compared to North Carolina, but (laughs) (laughs) in Denver, it's probably the highest we've seen all year. So yeah, that's the true sign that the monsoon's really getting going. Yeah, you can definitely see it, as you said, coming up from like Arizona, New Mexico, and even Mexico, and it's just nice plume that you can see in the actual uh, observations. Yeah, we got precipitable water, you got the moisture uh, from the satellite imagery. Uh, Even just looking at the visible, you can see just a big stream of clouds coming straight up. It's maybe uh, 300 miles wide, but it's maybe over 1,000 miles long. So it's a pretty good plume. So, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant to call it like truly the monsoon, but just because of the weather pattern that's set up, you know, we got that big trough, which we talked about earlier in the week in our weekly post, but there's a pretty significant trough along the Pacific coast, uh, the West coast, and then the high pressure along the Great Plains. So, you know, kind of in between that, um, we got that southerly flow. You know, it's sort of a monsoon-like, but it really needs to persist for that to be what would be considered a, you know, a true monsoon, you know, a seasonal wind shift. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, we're getting to the point now that, you know, the background atmospheric moisture is so high that, you know, any good push of southerly flow is going to have a lot of moisture in it. Yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, the National uh, Weather Weather Service in Tucson and Phoenix, I think, have been calling it the monsoon for a while now. So, but by their own standards, it really wasn't. In any case, yeah, we're definitely seeing that moisture work our way up here into Colorado. Yeah, which is a good sign. But I guess there could be some could be some localized flash flooding given the kind of the drought conditions, and I guess potentially some fires that could be started from the lightning yeah i haven't seen anything about fires really too much uh, but we did have some flash flooding yesterday out east across the eastern on the eastern border of colorado i don't know if you saw that there was uh there was like i posted on posted a little bit on twitter earlier but there was some thunderstorms that basically formed and then along this convergence line pretty much in Yuma County. These thunderstorms pretty much trained over the same area for about 10 hours. Wow. And um, yeah, right along the, basically right where Nebraska, Kansas, and Colorado come together, there was reports of between four and up to 10 inches of rain. Oh, wow. Jeez. So it was a lot of rain. It was a pretty small area, and that whole area, that whole region is under a flash flood watch right now and a flash flood warning. Um Basically, that's like the only place that's under a flood watch for Colorado. Yeah. You know, only because, you know, the ground's so saturated from getting 10 inches yesterday. Yeah. So, um, they definitely did some, had some flooding in Arizona, New Mexico. I don't know if we'll see those flood watches coming to Colorado this weekend. I mean, maybe. The moisture looks pretty good, but it's definitely not as intense as it will be further south. Plus, the winds yeah. are pretty, the steering flow is pretty strong between mm-hmm. the trough and the ridge. I mean, relatively for, you know, the middle of summer, 30 knots at 500 millibars is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was sort of like a, a little bit of a jet between those two systems. You mentioned one in the Pacific Northwest and then the ridge kind of like, you know, over Oklahoma, Texas. Yeah, I saw that in today's forecast update. There was... Yeah, what was the jet? Still like 50 or 60 miles per hour in the upper atmosphere? That was pretty weak jet. Yeah, pretty weak. But I guess 
for summer, I guess that's decent. Yeah, it's about all you can get. <laughs> yeah, so that, so that, uh, so this week we actually got a little bit more rain in Boulder. So we were sitting at zero point zero one inches for the entire month uh, up until Wednesday. Um, when a couple couple storms formed, heard a couple rumbles of thunder, but it didn't really rain all that much. Uh, but Boulder got another zero point zero five inches. It's another up to zero point zero six for the month. <laughs> and I did check, and this—if there was no more rain the rest of the month, this would be the driest July ever. So at least going back to the eighteen hundreds. Um, but you know, it already—it already rained today. We don't know how much fell exactly here in Boulder, but definitely seemed like maybe a tenth of an inch or so. So this will probably keep us in the top five but definitely not going to be the driest after today i would say for our, our <clears throat> for our listeners like what is the monthly average for july yeah so july is one of our wetter months but not definitely not the wettest um maybe i'll link to that in the uh post on our page for this but it's about 2.2 inches or so oh yeah that's that's for July, crazy. I mean, seems low for compared to other places, maybe, but <laughs> for us, um, July, we have most of our precip occurs in the spring, uh, in April and May, where we get over three inches. Uh, then it goes down a little bit in June and then comes back up when the summer monsoon kicks in here in July. But yeah, 2.2 inches where we should be, and we're down around less than 0.1 <laughs> for the yeah, month, so wow. less than 5%. So far, Ooh, mm. yeah, that's that's pretty low. It's dry. I noticed my grass really started turning brown this this <laughs> week. Even though I'm watering it, you know, a responsible amount, but I don't go crazy like some people or you know parks and stuff. But uh, it's definitely been challenging. As dry as it's been, Mother Nature's really not helping out. Yeah, are you watering those uh, your plants much more too? Uh, not really. I don't know. I found my garden has done pretty well being watered very little. <laughs> <laughs> and most of my outdoor plants are cactus, so <laughs> those don't get watered, in, you know, every couple weeks or so. Anyways, and they don't even care if it's 100 degrees. <laughs> but yeah, this week we did have our first 100 degree day. Uh, let me see here. Actually, it was last Saturday. Last Saturday, yeah, last Saturday was our was our first hundred degree day of the year. Denver, um, in Boulder, Denver actually is yet to hit one hundred degrees. They have like five ninety nine degree days, <laughs> um, but but Boulder seemingly hit a hundred degrees on a day where it was questionable. I don't know, but I guess it was a hundred degrees is what the climate center recorded. Okay, climate station. So we'll go with it, I guess. I but yeah, so. otherwise, we've been in the 90s all week, uh, generally low 90s, uh, upper 80s, low 90s. So it's been another, you know, near average or slightly up above average temperature week. And yeah, that trough we were talking about earlier that was over the Pacific, that is going to be, looks like it's going to be moving, progressing eastward in the next uh, couple of days here over the weekend into early next week. So, you know, that monsoon moisture is going to, for the time being, it's going to keep keep pumping northward, keep keep the chance of rain in the forecast for this weekend. But then uh, I did a post on this uh, on the website uh, earlier. You can check for that. But basically it talks about how the monsoon pattern doesn't look like it's going to stick around for long. And the same exact pattern that made July, you know, really hot and dry, looks like it's going to reform pretty quickly. I don't know if you've been checking the ensembles or anything. Uh, I haven't, but I do see what you're talking about and kind of like the long range as we go into next week. Mm -hmm. It does look like that. Yeah, and there's like really good consistency between the GFS and the European ensembles. So, I don't know. They have like literally almost an indistinguishable, indistinguishable 500 millibar setup for next the end of next week. From each other their ensemble means yeah 
So at least there's a pretty good probability that that's going to happen. Um, and that was just the pattern that really killed the entire month of July for us. Really makes the monsoon difficult to really get going, especially getting any kind of moisture into Colorado. Yeah. Um, the Climate Prediction Center for their forecast for their you know their six to ten and their eight to fourteen day forecasts. Um, they seemingly are a little bit <laughs> too optimistic in my opinion, but they do have uh, increased chances of above normal precipitation. Uh, at least for southern Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, but not really so much for Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they have drier than normal weather across the entire Rockies. July 30th through August 3rd. That's kind of the end of next week and into the weekend. And then even going through that next weekend, they have drier than normal and hotter than normal. So it, I guess they look like they, they think it's going to get pretty much back to like what july had been like for the west which unfortunately is not good for any type of drought mitigation Mm -hmm. you know it's gonna be bad yeah it's gonna be tough to make up that uh deficit yeah i don't know when we're gonna be able to do it it's been it's been pretty dry since like mid-june or so here in denver boulder area and you know southern colorado's had much had a much drier winter and spring so they're even further behind so yeah i don't know it doesn't seem promising yeah i always i always find it really interesting how colorado can like jump between extremes like you know you had the record snowfall for boulder you know yep. this past winter and then it goes it goes a 180 and it's like oh we're back to dry <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it doesn't take much around here, at least. Um, just the way the mountains are set up, that you know, you have to have very, you have to have a very, you know, specific pattern to get a lot of precipitation here. So, I imagine the variability in the different weather conditions from year to year, especially precip, is much higher here in Colorado than it would be, say, like the East Coast or the Southeast or something like that. I don't have any actual data for that. <laughs> back it <laughs> up, but I'm just, I'm imagining that it is. I think that's you know, reasonable. Yeah, I mean, we only get 20 inches a year, and, you know, we have a couple bad months, especially in the wet season, and that's half the precip doesn't pan out so so yeah next week you know it's going to start out a little bit cool uh, i actually looked at the five-day forecast we had generated for for today and there wasn't a single 90 degree temperature reading in the next five days hey that's so, good so yeah that big plume of monsoon moisture that long narrow uh, surge of moisture is going to keep it pretty cloudy and cool and we'll have rain forming Earlier in the day than we've seen, you know, most of the July will have a lot higher chances for rain, it's more widespread. So, you know, we'll be getting that, those outflows cooling us off. So, you know, probably not going to hit 90 in Boulder until maybe the middle or late part of next week when that pattern comes back. So, if anything, that's the good news. We got rain and we got some temporary reprieve from the heat. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were heading also, in addition to the, one of the driest Julys, we were getting close to one of the hottest Julys as well. Ooh. So this cool week should really knock us out of that contention. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be nice. Those days in the 80s are so much better than the days in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Just success of 90s is always uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, it just wears on you. Yeah. Well, here we had here we had like 110 heat indices for about a week, and then come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, and as you said, we had uh, clouds and increased rain come in the last couple of days, and so yeah, that's that's lowered our high temperatures. Oh, thankfully, yeah. that's always nice. <laughs> uh, speaking of heat indices, uh, did you want to talk about? What you recently added to the web page in the model viewer? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, we added a, yeah, we added a new product. Uh, it's on our page where if you go to the current conditions page. So on there, you'll find data from our actual weather station. Um, but we also have kind of current conditions across the state and also the front range. Um, one of the products we added on there was uh, it's a mix of heat index, wind chill, and like actual temperature. And we call it like kind of like you could think of it as like the apparent temperature or like a real feel, like what it actually feels out there, what it actually feels mm -hmm. like, as opposed to here's the high temperature and here's what it is. Whereas we're trying to give you sort of like a an estimate of what it actually feels like out there, depending on the time of year. So it, it should adjust for the time of year. Um, and obviously, Colorado is very dry in mm -hmm. general, and so heat index yeah. is not gonna is not gonna make it feel that much worse because it really is a factor of uh, the actual you know, moisture in the air. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, in I some cases, in some cases you're going to have a temperature that's, that feels much lower than the actual high temperature for the day. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I've been checking that, uh, new product, uh, for the last week or two and pretty much every day it's, I forget what we're calling it on there, but whatever the, <laughs> the, uh, apparent temperature is maybe we're calling it apparent temperature i don't know but uh the the apparent temperature is always lower than the actual temperature you know just because it's so dry it'll be in like the mid upper 90s and the apparent temperature will be in like the upper 80s to maybe 90 yeah so it's going down by maybe you know a handful of degrees yeah trying i'm trying to look up actually what we called it i know <laughs> i know there were some uh some legal oh. reasons you can call it something but yeah, we originally, <laughs> originally called it the real feel, but um, now we're actually calling it actual feel. Um, okay. So, give or take. Hopefully people know what that is. Yeah, that's more kind of prevalent across the Midwest and areas where there's a lot much more kind of more of a saturated and moist environment um, mm -hmm. where you'll tend to see you know, oh, a high temperature of 93 and the heat index is like 105. So it actually feels much worse. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the cutoff is for the dew point, whether the real, whether the uh, apparent temperature goes down or up <laughs> compared to the real temperature. It's probably around 60. Yeah. For the dew point, maybe. Because it seems like we're mostly in the 50s and the 40s and it goes down. But if you're in the 60s and 70s, it's definitely going way up. There's a there's actually a new uh, kind of a new thing that the National Weather Service is trying to incorporate. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of like I guess going to replace the heat index apparently. So they're actually it's not really in operational use right now. They're kind of like testing it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the kind of like the wet bulb globe temperature. Oh, um, and it's trying to do a measure of like the heat stress in direct sunlight um, and takes in like more, more factors than just the humidity and the temperature, like uh, wind speed, sun angle, cloud cover. And so I guess they're trying to improve on that. I'd be interested to see what that ends up being. Yeah. People can check it out. They just kind of search that search wet ball globe temperature on the internet and It'll, it'll tell you some information about it. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely, you know, being standing in direct sunlight is way hotter than standing in the shade. <laughs> if it's a midday sun, it's way hotter than an evening sun. So, yeah. It's good to uh, account for that to help people with their heat stress. Yeah. You know, it's pretty important for heat exhaustion and heat stroke and things like that. Heat safety. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, apparently heat index is mostly for like a shady environment, not really for the sunlight. So yeah, it's going to downplay check some that. of that actual. Yeah, check it out. Um, sure. Yeah, just one more thing about current weather before we head on to the lightning round. 
<laughs> uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the tropics starting to heat up a little bit? Yeah. So we have a couple of named storms in the Atlantic. Then we have one kind of out in the Eastern Pacific. Um, that one is Douglas, Hurricane Douglas, as we speak. It has Eastern, actually... In the Eastern so, Atlantic? Well, in the Atlantic. Or, sorry, sorry, Eastern Pacific. My, yeah, my bad. Okay. <laughs> I was... Yeah, Hurricane Douglas is uh, Category 3 major hurricane, last I checked at least. It is. It looked really uh, impressive. It was very symmetric. Had a nice eye. It did. I saw the people from the GOES, uh, the NOAA satellite division, whatever that's called, was uh, really bragging about how good, how good of imagery they were getting from the eye of Douglas. Nice. It did look really good, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it so looks... that's headed for Hawaii. Yeah. Supposedly like in the next couple definitely... of days. Potentially on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Do they like, think it's going to be a hurricane when it makes landfall, or is it going to be weakened by then? Because hurricane landfalls in Hawaii, as we've talked about before, are very rare. There's maybe only been a couple Yeah, since the 1950s. Yeah, it, it looks like it does weaken... Storm? Yeah, it looks like it weakens to either a tropical storm or a weak category one. Okay, could be could be something historic happening this weekend. Could be, or you know the the <laughs> eye could go between the could just miss Hawaii entirely. It's just a small <laughs> island in a big ocean. <laughs> so, uh, that's pretty good. Um, I think the most. Uh, the most relevant storm for Colorado is Tropical Storm Hannah, which just yeah. formed today, actually. I think. Either today or yesterday. No, I think it was today. Um, that one has actually been... Um, that one started out as a tropical wave that kind of came through over Cuba and Florida and then came out into the Gulf of Mexico. Um you know, into a relatively favorable environment. I mean, the water's not that warm yet. We're still, you know, we're in the the water gets much warmer as we get into August and early September. Um, but the, you know, it came out into a pretty favorable environment. And then now it's heading for kind of the Texas-Mexico border. Yeah. There is some hints that it could become a hurricane before making landfall. Southern Texas. Yeah, it definitely has the the looks of one. It does. It looks way better than uh, did you know twenty four hours ago. It's really getting a pretty good um, strengthening. Yeah, it looked like it was getting its act together when you look at the satellite today. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, it's not what Southern Texas wants to hear. Um, I've actually been watching this storm, you know, I saw hints of this storm maybe a week ago and I talked a little bit about it on Monday in our weekly post, but you know, this storm had the potential to kind of ride around that high pressure and then come up into Arizona, you know, the, the remnants of the storm, certainly not a hurricane, but, uh, you know, the residual moisture pull from this tropical system. Had the potential to come up our way eventually, but it doesn't really look like that's going to happen at this point. Looks like most of the moisture kind of stalls in Texas and then kind of sags south into Mexico uh, after the system dies early next week. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. But depending on exactly where it tracks in Mexico, mm -hmm. could be could be some something interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was excited about it, but that you know the the steering winds down there are really just kind of disorganized. It's kind of in this no man's land. There's super weak flow. So hopefully the storm keeps a forward progression. It doesn't stall out and flood somewhere. Too bad. Especially on the Texas coast. Yeah, uh, like we saw with 
Hurricane Harvey. Was it Harvey? I don't remember. The one that hit Houston a couple years ago. Do you remember which one that was? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I have terrible memory. <laughs> if they got like 50 inches of 50 or 60 inches of rain or something. Yeah, I have a bad memory as well. Yeah, so we'll be watching the remnants of Hannah as it goes inland uh, across Mexico and Texas. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's anything to immediately worry about. Worst case scenario, we get a little bump in moisture, you know, three, four, or five, six days later, something like that. Yeah. But it doesn't seem likely given the pattern shift that we're going to see next week. So probably, probably nothing to worry about. Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah. And then uh, the other storm way out in the Atlantic, um, Tropical Storm Gonzalo. Do you want to talk about that at all? It's not really going to be a concern for Colorado, at least in the next week or more. Yeah. It's, it's way out there. Yeah. It's kind of like north of South America, you know, just out there in the Atlantic. Um, looks like it's going to move into the Caribbean. And, you know, kind of the current forecast originally, well, a couple of days ago, I had it potentially moving uh, kind of like north of the Cuban, Cuba area, you know, on the okay. long range, in the long range. But now mm-hmm. kind of the latest uh, forecast has it kind of staying south of there and then kind of weakening before it even gets to the Caribbean uh, Okay. I don't know if it's, you know, due to like higher of a wind shear environment that's going to run into or some dry air. I'm not exactly sure. Um, okay. Because originally they had it kind of strengthening, but now it looks like it's weakening. But we'll have yeah. to see what, see what happens because some of these, you know, Caribbean track storms are somewhat pre- unpredictable sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think hurricane tracks in general are pretty unpredictable. <laughs> they are very Especially, tough. Yeah. I don't know. Let's see. You probably didn't do that, but back when I was a uh, teacher at CU during grad school, there was this project that we had the students do that was basically we took a hurricane that was somewhere out in the middle uh, of the Atlantic and we had to use 500 millibar maps and the different wind speeds and everything and all the forecasts um, looking ahead in the future to basically move that hurricane and see where it would make landfall. And each, uh, it, it was a real hurricane. I forget which one it was, but all of the students basically took all the model data and everything and then plotted this course of this hurricane over the course of the next week and where it would make landfall and when. <laughs> it was pretty fun. That's a good but, yeah. But yeah, it was. It looked like the model spaghetti plots. Like everyone's, we eventually made. It took everyone's plot and put it onto the same graphic, and it was just, it was just madness. Where this people were predicting this hurricane to <laughs> go, yeah. using actual model data and you know doing some calculations, uh, things like that. So it was, it's pretty crazy. They're pretty unpredictable. That's a, that's a really good exercise. Yeah, it was fun. I you should probably do that more often. You know and. That's, you know, hurricanes are generally steered by, you know, the mid-level flow in the atmosphere to some degree. Yeah. You know, so we look at 500 millibars to see where the hurricane's really going to be tracking. That's what's mostly going to be pushing it. So, because it's such a big system. Yeah. Which is about 15, 18,000 feet up. Mm-hmm. So, in any case, random tangent there. <laughs> but... <laughs> We'll keep it. Got to keep an eye on Gonzalo for the next week or more. See where yeah. it goes. We do have. I mean, there is. I mean, it is quite of an active season so far. Um, mm-hmm. When we, well, when I work at the weather service, they have the, the news on in case there's anything weather related. So, someone during the news was saying that it's a record for the earliest fifth named storm since records have been kept. You know, uh, what's the what was the fifth name storm E? Uh, A B C D E. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Edward. I don't know what E was. Edward. Yeah, it would have Ed- been 
a dwarf. Weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, we had Arthur, Bertha, Crystal Ball, Dolly, and Edward before the these current two. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, which and I thought was surprising. Yeah. The I remember the beginning of the, or you know, before the season started, they were predicting an above-average season, and you know, those predictions seem to be a little bit hit or miss, in my opinion. But um, so far, it's verified pretty well. And you know, typically we see that the Eastern Pacific and the Atlantic are somewhat inversely related. Yeah. You know, because if there's an El Nino, well, this year there's almost you know, there was a known somewhat of a weak El Nino, you know, neutral conditions, but you know, the warm, the cold water, there's pretty cold water over the, uh, in the Eastern Pacific these days. So that would generally have a negative influence on the hurricane season there, but actually has a positive influence on the Atlantic season. Makes sense. Um... But yeah, and I think the, the Eastern Pacific almost set a one an opposite record that you're, you're you were getting at. They said they had the the first hurricane of the season didn't form until Douglas, and that was one of the latest on record that the first hurricane formed. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Okay, usually they get a lot more hurricanes. Well, you know, a couple more hurricanes earlier in the season. Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, actually CSU, mm-hmm. Colorado, Colorado State University. They have a kind of a tropical uh, department there. They do their predictions for the forecast. Um, there's also an official one too, but they kind of like do their own. Some of the researchers there. Uh, yes. And they updated their forecast in June, um, and they're still forecasting 19 name storms this year. Uh, the Atlantic. For the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. They originally had 16 named storms in April when they issued their first forecast. Okay. Uh, and eight hurricanes and four major hurricanes. And what would average be, like 12? Yeah, I think it's somewhere around 12. Because 14 was above average, and they even went further and said it was even more above average, I think. Yeah. So probably like yeah. 12 or 13 is normal for named storms. Yeah. yeah. No, who knows? They're, they start naming... Uh, subtropical storms these days. Oh. Does that count? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we're already on number seven. So out of the eight, out of the nineteen that they're predicting. So I guess they're okay. on track. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, that the CSU is definitely a good resource. Their forecasts. Um, you know, generally they say more or less the same thing as the official National Hurricane Center one, but it's good to have multiple opinions. It is. Different approaches. So, um, do you want to move on to our lightning round? Sure can. Talk about <laughs> lightning. <laughs> so, since we do have the monsoon kind of kicking in, I thought it would be a perfect time to talk about, you know, lightning inside of thunderstorms and what causes lightning, how it forms, and how we can actually detect it. Um, so feel free to jump in anytime, Ben, but just will yeah, be a little take- brief. <laughs> At least I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> okay, sure. So, yeah, several conditions for lightning are, you know, have been known for quite a while. And I should point out a lot of this information, uh, I got is from Noah. So, uh, I will, <laughs> I will, uh, thank them for this information. But shout, uh, out tried to, to, shout out to, to Noah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we tried to make this as easy to understand as possible for a layman. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the conditions for lightning are fairly well known, but there's still some questions as exactly how it forms, um, just because it's very hard to observe inside a storm itself because we don't have actual observations inside of a cloud. Um, but we do know is that we need for lightning to form generally has a cloud that's a mixture of ice, hail, and also kind of these things we call grapple, which are essentially semi-frozen water droplets. 
uh, inside the cloud, as well as actual raindrops in the inside the storm. Um, That's the a reason, good point. yeah, I would. You have to have ice. That's the key. You can't just have liquid clouds. Exactly. Though, I mean, if you have a thunderstorm, you know, the top of the cloud is going to be, you know, the top of the atmosphere. It's likely there's going to be ice. You know, it's going to be negative 50 up there. Yeah. <laughs> the top, in the top of the troposphere, pretty much anywhere in the world. So you're going to have some ice in thunderstorms, but you're not going to be getting, you know, lightning out of a low stratus cloud in the summer. Mm-hmm. With just liquid. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and this mixture pretty much allows for, we'll get into it a little bit more, but like allows for like a separation of uh, charge uh, within the cloud. And that's kind of what's necessary for generating that kind of charge buildup and eventually leading to the lightning and thunder. Um, so if you just kind of like break it down to the bare bones, so like <laughs> inside a storm, you have kind of really strong vertical motion, both towards the upper atmosphere, the vertical motion, which was what we call the updraft, and then downward motion, kind of like coming down into the surface, which is what we call the downdraft, which the downdraft tends to give us the high winds at the surface if we have, you know, severe weather. Um, and so when the storm's developing and kind of strengthening, it's transporting you know liquid liquid water from the cloud uh, further up to as much as 35 40,000 feet up uh, and you know at these heights as Ben said the temperature of the atmosphere is well below freezing especially like in the mid latitudes where we all live um, temperature is generally below freezing at those uh, altitudes pretty much throughout the year um, but as you go towards like the tropics, it's, you know, that freezing level is going to be a little bit higher just because it's much warmer down there. Um, so at the same time, you have downdrafts that, you know, transport some of the ice uh, from the upper regions of the storm kind of to the middle part of the cloud. And so you tend to get sort of a collision between the water droplets and the ice, and when some of that water droplets kind of collide with uh, kind of the ice, that tends to freeze the droplets on contact. Um, and that tends to form some of the grapple, or think of it sort of like tiny, tiny hailstones. Um, and so we, this kind of just happens off over and over because there's a lot of, you know, vertical motions going on, but uh, you get the collisions between the grapple and the, the raindrops, and eventually causes, like, these things we call elect electrons that more or less get shed uh, from the particles that are ascending uh, into the cloud from below. And so you end up having electrons kind of remaining connected to the the uh, more or less at the base of the cloud, kind of at the bottom port of, portion of the cloud, um, because you know when they're colliding, kind of like you could say, like in the middle of the cloud, they're more or less kind of being being taken off of those uh, particular ice particles and uh, raindrops that are colliding with the grapple. And so, over time, what happens is you tend to get, uh, if you think about it, so it's. Maybe over your head, but essentially electrons, the way the thing to think about is that they carry a negative charge. And so it causes over time you have the electrons, you know, towards the bottom of the cloud, which they carry negative charge. And so you have negative charge that kind of builds up uh, towards the bottom, and then positive charge tends to develop towards the top part of the cloud. And so <laughs> the way that works, then you end up having like a charge separation where you have positive towards the base and positive towards the top of the cloud. And so just like a magnet, opposites tend to attract and uh, similar charges will oppose each other. And so 
when you get that separation, essentially it generates an electric field, um, and that can strengthen with time. The you know the more uh, separated the charges are, and eventually you'll get enough of that uh, to build up over time, which eventually will discharge into forming lightning. Which I think the whole reason behind the lightning is just basically it's trying to bring the atmosphere back to balance, which is trying to neutralize those charges again. Um, right, Ben? That's the way to put it. Yep. I guess. <laughs> yeah. And you, you talked about the charge separation in the cloud between the base and the top. So that's going to form the inner cloud lightning. I don't know if you're going to get to that or not, but but there's also a charge separation between the base of the cloud and the ground that forms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's three types. Yeah, that was great. I was going to go right into that. It's awesome. Okay. <laughs> I can't see your notes. So. Yeah, so there's yeah. So there's three types of uh, lightning. There's cloud to cloud, which, you know, it tends to form like where 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 you tend to see the lightning kind of like brighten the cloud at night. That's mm -hmm. be, that would be cloud to cloud. There's also it could also be called intra-cloud. That's another term for it. And sometimes you can get actually cloud to air, cloud to air, although it's maybe less frequent, where the kind of like the lightning will kind of like extend out into the out into the air, uh, clear air. And then there's cloud to ground, which you know occurs between the cloud base predominantly and the ground, or like an elevated surface, like a tree or a building, things like that. Um, so that occurs sort of in a similar way where you have that charge separation. The only thing is that uh, you have generally kind of positive charge near the ground. Mm -hmm. And then you have the negative charge kind of at the base of the cloud. And so you get that charge separation. And so what happens is like usually the negative charge will kind of like descend to try and meet up with the positive charge which we call like a stepped leader that's what it's called um you can't really see it at this point although you know it happens in a number of seconds but um you can't really see the step leader and then not uh, with your eyes <laughs> not with our yeah potentially with the sophisticated I, uh measurements <laughs> yeah i do have a uh i do have a good link i can put in our with this post about that Someone re some recorded lightning with like a thousand frames per hundred thousand frames per second. Oh wow! So you they got you can really see that's that exact thing you're talking about the step leader coming down. It's like the it just like feels out where the the line of you know best uh, least resistance is, and that's then the rest of the lightning comes down after it. Nice, that'd be that. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. You can see it pretty well on that, but I'll post that in the on our website in this post. Yeah, and at the same time that you get the negative charge kind of stepping down, uh, you have a positive charge from the elevated surfaces or even the ground. You know, you can get a strike hitting the ground as opposed to, you know, also elevated surfaces like a tree. And then that will tend to ascend vertically to meet up with the negatively charged step leader. And once these two kind of connect that's when you get the lightning flash and the transfer of that electricity and kind of dissipates that, uh, that uh, charge. Um, so, but there's another component. So you can get, so what we call, we call two different types of cloud to ground. There's like a negative cloud to ground and there's positive cloud to ground. Negative cloud to ground is primarily the most predominant. Um, and that's, and that's defined by like, you know, the negative charge from the base of the cloud kind of connecting to the ground. But then the positive mm -hmm. cloud to ground can occur potentially when the positive charge from the upper part of the storm eventually meets up with the ground. Oh. And those are less frequent. I tend to define that they're maybe 5% of all cloud to ground strikes. Um, but they but they tend to be more dangerous because it's it's traversing a much longer distance. So you have a much larger charge separation and a much, much stronger electric field. 
Um, and those you tend to get a much, uh, the flash duration tends to be much longer and much stronger. Hmm. Um, and that's okay. kind of, that's kind of why they say that lightning can strike 25 miles away, you know, and that's probably from these positive cloud to ground strikes. Um, yeah. And the big top of the top of the big anvil, something yeah. like that. That could be, you know, 20 miles away from where it's raining. Exactly. Or more on supercells. <laughs> Um, that's all I had on in terms of how it works Um, so basically how do we actually observe it besides just our eyes you know there's um, I think we had a post out a year or so ago about the new GOES satellites that were launched Mm -hmm. Um, GOES 16 and 17 which are kind of like continuously monitoring North America uh every day, 24-7. And on those satellites, they have an instrument called the Geostationary Lightning Mapper, and that can actually detect total lightning, you know, all types, cloud-to-ground, uh, intra-cloud, um, continuously, day and night. Um, so it gives us a full picture of what's going on um, in the atmosphere. Um, and can be useful for, you know, detecting storms ahead of time for providing advance warning uh, for the for the public. Oh, I'm actually looking at the uh, Gozi's lightning mapper right now. It's pretty cool. There, it's pretty cool to see that the tropical storm Hannah going towards Texas has almost no lightning strikes near its core. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. That is interesting, yeah. You know, this, the core is pretty intense convection, but it doesn't actually have any lightning, I guess. Just some lightning in the outer bands. Yeah, so, yeah, we call it GLM or Geostationary Lightning Mapper. Actually, just kind of measures the visual emission of light, of the lightning, and it's a pretty high, you know, resolution in terms of, like, its footprint is, like, eight kilometers. Um, okay. So not, like... Not super high res, but pretty good for a satellite that's like, you know, miles above the surface. <laughs> um, it's thousands of miles, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how far away it is, but geostationary ones tend to be really far away. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it can monitor the entire, basically the entire planet between goes. Uh, well, not the entire planet, but the you know half of the almost half of the Earth with its the view that it has at the eight kilometer resolution. That's pretty good. Yeah, they did a good job. But we can also detect it from the ground. Um, there's a couple different networks. There's the National Light- Lightning Detection Network or NLDN, um, which detects you know both types, cloud to ground and intracloud, but Primarily, we'll only detect it within wherever the networks are actually located across the the, the, con- the contiguous U.S. Um, these are operated, you know, by Vicella and like the Earth Networks. I think is the other com- the other company. Um, and I think I don't know exactly how they work, but they detect radio waves from the strokes, and so they have to do some kind of filtering with the data to make sure that what they're detecting is actually a lightning strike. Um, yeah, I think it's the fact that they can use multiple sensors at the same time. Okay. That's how, that's how they actually get the lightning out of it. If you that just makes... had one sensor, you wouldn't be able to filter it by itself, but the network of sensors together can somehow, I don't know, maybe like triangulate where the lightning was. Okay. Something like that. But yeah, that's pretty antiquated technology. As far yeah. as I know, it doesn't doesn't seem practical when we could just throw a satellite up and watch <laughs> the whole Earth. Yeah, of course. I'm guessing this ground network probably has a better spatial resolution compared to the satellite, but it's only going to give you so much information compared to what a satellite can give you, being like continuous over the whole U.S. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you need more than eight kilometers resolution or whatever the geostationary lightning mapper is, yeah, you're probably 
gonna need to use the, that technology from Vaisala. Exactly. And I think those are pretty expensive. I know we were talking to the CU campus, and they installed something along those lines. Oh. So, a lightning detector that, that would detect the lightning in the nearby and then set off a siren. Oh, cool. Um, they said it was pretty expensive. <laughs> but, you know, it's good to have for when there's a lot of people outside like there is on campus. There's a quiz quiz question for you, Ben. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know there was a quiz. <laughs> How many lightning strikes would you say the U.S. receives about once a year? Or every year. You mean total strikes inside the United States? Yeah. Ugh. That's a tough one. Um, huh. I don't know. Maybe 5 million? <laughs> 25 million. Ah, 25 million. Okay. I was thinking there was about 10 or 15 million worldwide. I figured the U.S. might have had five of those. <laughs> but you're saying there's that many more? <laughs> uh, much more, yeah. And I think each one, you know, each bolt is about 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So that's kind of why we say when thunder roars, go indoors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not smart to be outside. <laughs> no, I think globally... Um, there was there was a previous satellite before GLM. It's now retired. It was the optical transient detector that was aboard a different satellite. Um, and I think if you they did some climatology on it, and I only know this because it was in one of the papers that I wrote. I cited that paper, um, and I think it was like four point five or four point six billion flashes per square kilometer per year if you okay. did, did it globally um so wow <laughs> that's so. a lot of lightning <laughs> if there's 25 man it's pretty amazing 25 million strikes in the u.s and only about 20 to 30 people end up getting killed from lightning every year that's a good point been going way down over the last couple decades, but uh, you know, twenty or thirty people are you know taking lightning more seriously. It seems like, yeah. And I think or there's just go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, or there's just less people outside because they're all inside. <laughs> people, you know, we don't have. There's not people as many people out in the farms and things like that as there might have been, you know, thirty years ago, forty years ago. That's true. That's true. Anything else? I think the only last thing I was going to mention was there is another, uh, you know, set of uh, measurements from the lightning mapping arrays, mm -hmm. which kind of give you a 3D picture of lightning. And they kind of detect its structure kind of over the full life cycle. And I believe it detects radio noise, but exactly how it works, I don't know. I'm not going to be able to help you with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of like a little snippet of how we actually observe it, which, um, you know, it's pretty pretty amazing if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, it's sort of like tornadoes. We don't fully 100%, you know, guaranteed to know exactly that, you know, the theory is correct, but it's pretty good evidence to say how lightning forms. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to that? Um, I got one quick quiz quiz question for you. Right back at you. All right. <laughs> Do you remember how if you if you see a lightning flash and then hear the thunder, how many seconds later of the thunder is one mile distance to that lightning bolt? Five seconds. Darn! You knew your stuff. <laughs> yes, it's a little bit less than five seconds. That's good to know, actually. So you could probably repeat that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So lightning, you know, the speed of light is way faster than the speed of sound. So you know that, you know, you see a lightning bolt. You're pretty much seeing it instantly as it's happening. But that 
the speed of sound actually has you know pr you know propagate through the different air molecules uh, that pressure wave so that's a lot slower than light and in any case um the delay you hear between the thunder and the lightning is one mile for every five seconds in any case so you know if you see lightning and hear it immediately it's really close <laughs> and really loud <laughs> but, which which happened uh on one of our hikes but that's another day <laughs> another story. yeah that was, a, that was a bad day but um yeah so the speed of sound is about 1100 feet per second or a little over a mile in five seconds but in any case that's all i got do you think uh so it tends tends to be like colorado tends to get a fairly uh impressive lightning uh with some of their monsoon storms and do you mm -hmm. think that's do you think that's partially related to being at a higher elevation with you know more of a mix of ice and and uh mix a, more of a mixture of different uh particles in the cloud because we're higher up and there's we're closer to like the freezing level or do you think it's just in my imagination i don't know <laughs> i mean i think you're right i mean i haven't lived i haven't experienced like an east coast or a midwest lightning storm in a long time but i imagine there's a lot of lightning in those storms too i don't know but yeah some of those monsoon storms are pretty intense but i think that would be the case anywhere where there's three thousand cape <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean colorado is definitely known for definitely has more hail producing storms than other places so maybe it's maybe you're catching on to something there with the ice yeah i don't i'm just guessing but i remember my phd advisor would he did his phd i believe in tucson and so he would always talk about the lightning there it was also impressive but they're not as high of an elevation but it could be maybe it's something with the dry climate i don't know I don't know. I find in Colorado compared to the East Coast from my time living there that just the, I don't know, the cloud bases are a lot higher. So you can see like a lot more storms and the lightning travels a lot longer to get to the ground from the clouds. So and it's not, I don't know. I just think it's, I don't know. Storms are more visible here than they are in other places. I definitely had more like booming lightning experiences on the East Coast than I had in Colorado. I've had true. a handful of times where you know the lightning has, uh, you know, been so close and loud that you know shaking my whole house or something like that in Colorado. But I remember that all the time when I was growing up. That was like every <laughs> most of the storms, you know, probably the same for you in St. Louis. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't rain much here, so that doesn't help either. But <laughs> I don't know. It's all conjecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's all I have. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. Went a little bit long today, but that's fine. We can wrap it up and think about some interesting topics for next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next podcast. Yeah. Take care.